This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is an important event in what is the be- uh, beginning of a new part of the North American economic relationship. And if we look uh, backwards in time, you know, there's a, uh, a sense that we're in a, a moment of crisis, a moment of, of transition. Uh, Trade agreements are, are never born out of moments of calm. They're born out of moments of necessity. So you think about the origins of NAFTA. It really started with a fateful phone call that finance minister Jesus Silva Herzog made to the U.S. government and the International Monetary Fund of August of 1982 saying Mexico couldn't pay its debts. Um, that process initiated the, the debt crisis, uh, which consumed much of Latin America during the 1980s. Uh, but the outcome all of, all, of all of that was a changed economic landscape. Uh, Mexico's uh, unilateral liberalization of its trade barriers in 1986, which complemented the beginning of talks between the U.S. and Canada uh, to liberalize trade that culminated in the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement in 1989 and then was followed by the beginnings of the NAFTA negotiations uh, and its ultimate signing uh, by the three presidents in 1992 and ratification uh, in 1993. So we're back now in another moment uh, where we're not exactly sure where things are headed. There are political currents and economic currents which have complicated uh, relations, not just between the United States and its North American partners, but between the United States uh, and the rest of the world. What we're here to do today is try and assess what has NAFTA meant for the three economies. Um, What have been the, the origins of its success? What are the problems that NAFTA still has to address? And if we thought about Uh, what the future of the North American relationship uh, should look like, uh, what should elements of that relationship uh, contain. Um, It is, uh, needless to say, a very important moment uh, globally. We have competing centers of gravity now. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, we have the uh, announcement of negotiations for the RCP uh, in Asia, which will involve uh, the the follow-on to the failed Trans-Pacific Partnership, which involves a different model for integration than the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership represented. That goes back to kind of what we did in the decades in the past and focused just on, on liberalizing tariffs. As we think about the future of the North American economic relationship, we have an opportunity to, again, think more expansively about what countries need to do uh, to successfully bring their economies together in a manner that generates uh, inclusive economic growth uh, and opportunity. NAFTA got talked about a lot during the campaign, certainly of the last year, uh, mostly by folks who had no clue what it is or what it does. So I think it, it is uh, appropriate for us to start by asking some folks who have some of the most experience uh, working directly with economic affairs, uh, with the economics and legality of NAFTA. Uh, and we're going to start with Beatriz, who has both a sort of a law and economist view of it, um, has been working in this area for the entire 25 years since NAFTA was signed. Uh, and to, to talk to us a little bit about what is it, what does it mean, um, and, and what are the provisions uh, of NAFTA? Why, why is it different than other trade agreements? Um, how does it differ from, from some of the other things that are going on? And what has it meant um, over the last... We'll, we'll then ask uh, Antonio and Russ to talk to us specifically about how it's worked in, this, in the economies of Mexico and the U.S. But I think if Beatrice can set the stage for exactly 
what it is, what did we agree to, uh, and what is the legal context in which uh, NAFTA has moved forward for the last 23 years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Denise. Good morning. I'm very happy to be here, very honored. I highly respect the Center of U.S.-Mexican Studies. This was my most important source of, has been my most important source of information. And I'm very privileged also because my son studies in the school system in L.A., UCLA. Nobody's perfect. But, <laughs> but I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you, Rafael. Thank you, Gordon Hanson, Melissa Floca, for, for inviting me to be with you. Trade is certainly living um, in, in a time of cholera. And as Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, expressed through one of its most important characters, Florentino Ariza, hopefully at this time of calamity, love will become greater and nobler. Let's hope, between Mexico and the U.S., to start with an optimistic view. Mexico and the U.S., married under NAFTA, have been married under NAFTA for more than, than 20 years. They have had more, a more or less stable relationship despite the menace de trois. And one of the spouses, the U.S., has for many, has for, during these years, has had many other distractions, paid attention to other relationships, which did not make Mexico very happy. Mexico, during these 20 years or more, has been fighting for greater attention. And finally, at this time, we see that the U.S., pays attention to Mexico, and in, that, in, that, in, that, in this new context, it has requested a revision of the marital vows, and has threatened, if no agreement is reached, that divorce could be imminent. So we have to be very careful for what we wish for, as it is said. During these more than 20 years, if you were to look, if the U.S. or any other country would look, would, would look at Mexico and those very popular sites to find a relationship, such as Match.com, this is what you would more or less see with regard to Mexico. It's a country that is seeking or trying to, see, to seek for, move from monogamy to an open relationship. It has relationships with over 46 countries, although no, not as intense as it has with the U.S., through 11 FTAs. Mexico is the 15th economy of the world. It lives, it has a privileged address and location. It has become throughout these years um, a global manufacturer, the 12th exporter of the world and the 12th importer of the world. It has a big family, 118 million, and um, it has, like every, nobody is perfect, it has certain shortcomings. And throughout the years, I would say that those th shortcomings would be, it has not grown sufficiently, it has grown half the rate it should have grown. Um, it is a country that has been slow to change. The liberal, trade liberalization of Mexico was not accompanied by the structural reforms that should have occurred 
during the time NAFTA was negotiated, and it has not been successful either to democratize trade, to be able to integrate more companies, uh, SMEs particularly, more states, and more economic sectors. So that, that, is, that is a challenge that I would like to say. With regard to the, specifically to Mexico-U.S. relationship, um, just a, point, uh, a quick note, I would say that uh, in, in 2015, as you can see there, Mexico's, Mexico is the U.S. Most, second most important export market, the third large, largest supplier in the U.S., one-third approximately of what the U.S. buys from the world is from Mexico and Canada, and one-third of what it sells to the world goes to Mexico and to Canada. Mexicans are the second to most visit the U.S., and Americans the first to most visit Mexico. So that's, that's just a quick just overall view of, of the economic relationship. I understand Antonio will touch more upon it, but I just wanted to give this general, um, general view of how I see things. With regard to the marital vows, the possible scenarios that I, that I see. The difference between what we saw uh, when NAFTA was being negotiated, in which Mexico wanted to have a very comprehensive and deep agreement similar to the one that U.S. had negotiated with NAFTA, at this moment, I, I consider that Mexico wishes to be not that ambitious, given the risks that that would be involved, that that would involve. So I would say that one scenario, which would not be bad for Mexico, is to have NAFTA untouched. It would be, yes, looking at the relationship and looking at the things that, uh, that concerns the present administ U.S. administration, but there's things that can be moved that do not necessarily require touching the agreement. One very important is rule of, rules of origin in order to integrate more from the region. And you can modify NAFTA's rules of origin. We have done so, five different packages of modifications to the rules of origin, and they have not gone through the Canadian or the U.S. Congress. They have in the case of Mexico, but not in, for those two countries. Only uh, rules of origin uh, that are related to te the textile sector would need congressional approval. Infrastructure, which is a big, big challenge, particularly in the border, to, to build a 21st century border. Regulatory cooperation, trade facilitation. There are examples of things that can be done which would not mean touching the agreement. But if this scenario is not possible, the second best scenario for Mexico, I would say, is make limited changes to the agreement. And the, the idea is to have a contained package that would be agreed, that could be agreed by the most important stakeholders, and that could look at things that have been of concern, such as dispute settlement, the different mechanisms, do side agreements in issues such as um, currency manipulation, anti-corruption. It would be very good for Mexico to have under NAFTA a system similar to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that the U.S. have. 
labor and environment. Those can be done without necessarily opening the, reopening the whole agreement. The third scenario, substantial changes to the agreement, which seems what the present administration wishes or has, uh, has, has told us. We don't know specifically what they want, but from sources, I, I spent some the last week in Washington, and from what I heard from the business sector, uh, it could be, and I hope it is the case, that the present administration, and specifically Donald Trump, is looking to modify the agreement, not necessarily to make it more restrictive, as we have heard in the press. We could be, it could be that there are certain things that need to be changed in order to integrate more uh, the, the regional value chain in North America, to have better, better labor job, better, better wages in the region, and to perhaps fight a common enemy, which is not Mexico, perhaps to tackle China specifically. So that's something I heard. It's an optimistic note. We hope that that is the case and this is what would happen. But obviously it has important challenges, very important risks as well. If you open one of the elements or one of the, of the issues, particularly tariffs or you establish voluntary export restraints or quotas, it could be that things unravel, as we have said throughout the, all of these years, in which if you try to move the manufacturing conditions of the agreement of market access, our agricultural sector will also want to establish restrictive trade um, provisions. So it is very dangerous. But it could be an opportunity also to modernize NAFTA and to move ahead and to, do the, to tackle the, the trade agenda that has been pending for many, so many years. The, 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 the next scenario would be the divorce. If things get very tense, if uh, Mexico is not able to give to the U.S. what they're requesting, this could happen. And I, and I want to transmit that by our contact in Mexico with the private sector, that as a consultant, we have been in, um, close to the private sector in Mexico because they're very concerned. I can tell you that the private sector is beginning to be prepared for this alternative. They would prefer this alternative than to see an NAFTA that's substantially changed and that is more restrictive. For Mexico, we have the WTO. This would apply. And our t uh, bound tariffs under the WTO are six times, in the case of agriculture, higher than those that the U.S. could impose in the agriculture sector. So Mexico wouldn't be that bad off under a scenario in which, obviously, the U.S. respects the WTO commitments. The next scenario that could occur is a trade war. And that trade war, in, in the case the U.S. imposes measures that are uh, contrary to NAFTA or contrary to the WTO, Mexico has leverage. And we have shown that we have that leverage, as we did when th with the trucking dispute some years ago, in which after more than 20 years of litigation, Mexico finally decided to impose retaliatory measures for noncompliance 
of the provisions that have to do with cross-border trucking. There were two packages of lists, a list of approximately 100 products, and you can see what happened during that years in which Mexico, that year in which Mexico imposed um, those retaliatory measures. 25,600 jobs were lost. Exports of 81% of those products included in the retaliatory list contracted. And the list affected uh, 2.4 to 2.6 million U.S. dollars. We applied the carousel system in which we modified the list so we, could, we would create greater uncertainty and greater pressure from the stakeholders. Our strategy was very clear. To tackle those products, which were not inputs that would affect our production chains, to tackle those goods that were not stable, stable consumer products, and to tackle those goods that came from those counties, those locations in which those congressmen that attacked the, the implementation of that provision were from. And so we were very extremely effective. One year afterwards, we were signing the, the, the compliance of, of the agreement. And they openly said, US, uh, trade, the U.S. Trade Administration said, if you hadn't done so, we would have remain non-complying the agreement. So we had that capacity, although we're a smaller country, to do that in the case that happens. What would be the, the constraints in this context that I see? For the first thing that is interesting, Congress. What I heard also uh, during these days in Washington is that given the stakes that are involved in NAFTA, many congressmen wish not to have to vote on NAFTA. The cost would be high, you have elections coming next year, and they would rather not touch NAFTA. If it, that, would, that is something that I heard. That could be a possibility. The second constraint, or the second consideration that the U.S. has to take, the AFL-CIO uh, demands. The AFL-CIO has prepared a blueprint of what they want in the agreement. They have very specific requests, and it is interesting to see that their requests are less ambitious in terms of restrictiveness and of undoing NAFTA than the US, what we've heard from the U.S. administration. Withdrawal is not an alternative, and we consider that if those are addressed, Mexico would be in general, well with those provisions. The third thing, trade promotion authority. Trump cannot divert from the objectives of the trade promotion authority. If you look at them, the trade promotion authority were, were given to uh, President Obama to negotiate TPP. And those are the objectives. They do not call for the withdrawal of the, from the dispute settlement procedures. Um, they call for opening of the trade, further liberalization, labor and environment, things that Mexico uh, negotiated under the TPP. We have not approved them because Congress did not go through Congress. It will not be easy for Mexico to give that, but Mexico is something that can live with that because it already negotiated that with the, with the U.S. Finally. Gabriel Garcia Márquez acknowledged that the most important thing 
in a good marriage is not happiness but stability. Let's hope that this stability and certainty is soon restored in North America. Thank you very much. Here on the border, we've always said uh, we were married without the possibility of divorce because of our proximity. Uh, so that, that makes that a little tougher to, to figure out how to do. Um, because we're running a little behind, I want to just jump over uh, and have Antonio um, share with us a little bit of the more specifics, what it's meant to the Mexican economy, what's worked, what hasn't worked, uh, and from his perspective as someone who worked in economic affairs for the U.S. Embassy, uh, the Mexican Embassy in Washington. It really is uh, uh, great to be here. As, uh, as Gordon mentioned, you know, I did my grad studies here, and two of my three children are from San Diego, so this is really uh, uh, coming home. I wanted to provide context just like Beatrice did, and I'm not uh, uh, doing away with my responsibility of providing some facts and figures uh, economically, but I'll tell you how I'll do that. Uh, so I'll, I'll first give an... Uh, brief introduction, then give my perspective of what I think is at stake, and then provide some guidelines about where I think uh, we can do. The first thing that I want to note is that NAFTA was born by happenstance. You know, Mexico for decades tried to diversify its trade relations. Uh, Beatriz and I were colleagues in the NAFTA negotiation office, and we know that before NAFTA, we tried to engage with Europe. But, you know, the Berlin Wall had fallen and the Europeans were not paying a whole lot of attention to us in Mexico. So Mexico approached the U.S. So that was not a menage a trois. We wanted to marry uh, the U.S., but the U.S. was already married. Now the other wife said, I'd rather have a menage a trois than a divorce. So we have the uh, menage a trois. And for Mexico, this was a big uh, strategic decision, or as someone would say, a huge, a big uh, strategic decision, okay? Uh, because for decades, we tried to diversify our trade relations, and we said, look, uh, this is our you know, best bet. Let's make uh, a marriage of convenience, if not love. And we did decide uh, to get married, with the difference being that it is very costly to be divorced because we are neighbors, and I do believe that geography is destiny. But this is true for Mexico, just as it is true uh, for the uh, United States. Recently, I, I helped put together a special issue of, of uh, Comercio Exterior, the Mexican Foreign Trade Bank uh, Journal. This is a special bilingual edition in English and Spanish, and it provides factual facts, not alternative facts, on the uh, North American uh, relationship. And um, there are some uh, samples outside, and I'll also give uh, Melissa Floca uh, the electronic version so that uh, she can share it uh, uh, with you. There's an article by yours truly and also by Lindsay Aldensky, a, a student of uh, Gordon Hansen. So several UCSD alumni have articles here. have to make the plug. Um, and it, it just shows how both countries and also Canada have become uh, increasingly interdependent, not only as, uh, as partners in terms of trade and in trade, but also in terms of investment and uh, 
and joint uh, production. And the basic aim of NAFTA was, from my view, not necessarily to reduce tariffs, but to provide stability and clarity. We happen to reduce tariffs, and we happen to construct some rules of origin and to establish dispute settlement mechanisms. But the whole basis was to establish clear, transparent, and permanent rules to govern regional trade. And right now, we have anything but stability and clarity, given U.S. domestic uh, politics. And I think that is uh, very uh, unwelcome for Mexico, for the U.S. and Canada. And what is at stake is not necessarily NAFTA or whether we will tinker with the rules of origin. I believe the whole bilateral relationship is at stake. NAFTA is a way in which Mexico showed it decided to, you know, put a bet on its relationship with the U.S. Uh, But, you know, cooperation on security and immigration, as well as the future of trade and investment, is at stake. So this is not a trade issue or a potential trade dispute. This is a a, this could be a turning point in terms of uh, uh, bilateral relations. Of course, Mexico could be uh, adversely uh, affected if its exports <clears throat> cannot access the U.S. market. I'm uh, concerned above all uh, about agriculture because you know products are perishable. It is very different to find alternate markets in terms of exports. As, as you know, Mexico exports a lot of avocados and a lot of tomatoes to the U.S. Where are most tomatoes produced? In the state of Sinaloa. Where are most avocados produced? In the state of Michoacán. So avocados and tomatoes uh, generate a lot of jobs in Mexico. And if we can no longer export to the U.S., there will be unemployment in Mexico. And I don't think that would be good for you know, so social stability and uh, you know, combat against you know, organized crime. And this is not good for Mexico, and this is not good for the U.S. So this is not only you know, avocados and tomatoes. You know, this is also linked to national security interests of Mexico um, and the U.S., for the U.S., as uh, Beatriz said, uh, you know, they could also face uh, some uh, losses, and they already did uh, when we uh, imposed uh, sanctions over the cross-border trucking uh, dispute. That is not the way I'm sure Mexico wants to go. But I would, I would say that, that the potential costs for the U.S. are even higher than just e- in economic terms. Uh, decades of trust building uh, in terms of bilateral relations, uh, could unravel. Some people uh, have said that it's important to look at what the U.S. government does, not at what the U.S. government says. But I do believe that words matter. And I believe that talk about the wall is already having effects, even without the wall being built, especially the insistence that Mexico pay for the wall, because Mexico will not pay for the wall. That is a fact, okay? No, I mean, it's just a fact. And if that is a sort of precondition to reach agreement on a host of issues, then it will be very, very difficult indeed to reach agreement. I was thinking about a very old piece of work on international negotiations uh, attributed to Sun Tzu called The Art of War. And Sun Tzu says that where you're engaging with an adversary, you should always leave him a way out. 
And if the U.S. insists that Mexico pay for the wall, the U.S. is not leaving a way out for Mexico. So this is not a way to negotiate from a tough perspective. This is a way to make it very, very, very difficult to reach an agreement. So something has to be found uh, to get out of this uh, corner. I believe that the U.S. somehow has been painting itself into a, uh, into a corner. Now, the U.S., wants jobs, prosperity, and security. And I think that's not only correct, but that's almost you know, the definition of what the, the state is supposed to do. You know? The Leviathan is supposed to provide uh, security so that life is not nasty, brutish, and short, as we were taught here, and provide the basis for uh, prosperity. Agreed. But if security is uh, uh, tried to be attained through the, the, a wall or through a, a border tax, and prosperity, prosperity through a renegotiation of NAFTA, whereby a trade surplus for the U.S. is something good and a trade deficit is something bad, then I think there is a confusion between means and ends. And those uh, uh, means will make the U.S. less safe and less prosperous. So where do we go uh, from here? I, I agree with the scenarios uh, displayed by uh, Beatriz, but my own uh, perspective preference would be to use the current situation as an opportunity to think big. I think uh, Mexico should start with NAFTA as a beginning, as a floor. Uh, it should not accept any tariffs, any quotas. So. That's the starting point. I don't see why Mexico should be willing to accept anything that it already has. Uh, I think it could be an opportunity to modernize uh, NAFTA, to think about the needs in terms of new industries, new technologies. The uh, McKinsey Global Institute, I believe last year, published a very interesting study on 12 technologies that will change the way we produce and the way we trade. And I think we have to incorporate that into what we're doing, and not only be very defensive in terms of, you know, let's make, tinker with this rule of origin to make sure we don't, we don't lose uh, access to the U.S. market. I think it's time to think big, but again, taking the basis of NAFTA as a way to uh, uh, negotiate. And let me give you an example of why I think we should do that. Imagine a uh, future where almost all cars in the U.S. are produced by robots, and the U.S. becomes very efficient, and it has a trade surplus. So the number of manufacturing jobs related to the auto industry are very low. What do you do now? Do you keep blaming Mexico? Do you destroy the robots? I mean, just we have to think through the technological revolution and what it means for bilateral trade and, and investment uh, relations. And I would say that the opportunity cost for Mexico, but also for the U.S., will only grow over time. We're in a very interesting situation where the potential partner will become more beautiful over time, not ugly, you know. Mexico will become more attractive over time. Why? According to PricewaterhouseCoopers' uh, estimates, in 2050, Mexico will be the seventh economy in the world. It will be larger than the UK, than France, than Germany, than Japan, than Canada. So why do you, ha do you want to fight with a, with a 
you know, your partner that's becoming, you know, stronger and more beautiful and more attractive. I, I don't think it makes sense uh, for the U.S. Uh, to do that. But in order for, for, for us to reach agreement, I think that the U.S. must avoid what Mexico did for many uh, decades. And I don't know why I'm also thinking about literature, but in this case about Jane Austen. And I was trying to think about how Mexico uh, directed its relations to the U.S. You know, in decades past, and I thought about pride and prejudice. You know, there was a lot of natural uh, uh, national pride in Mexico, strong nationalism and prejudice. You know, the U.S. is an adversary, the U.S. is an enemy, and I think that was very dysfunctional. You know, when Beatriz and I and other colleagues in our, in our generation, you know decided to uh, engage with the U.S. in a more constructive matter, manner, I think this was very positive for both uh, countries. And in a paradoxical way, the U.S. might be in a similar situation to the one Mexico was maybe 30 years ago. You know, a lot of you know, national pride thing, feeling that they've been mis- mistreated by Mexico and with prejudice against Mexico and, and against Mexicans. And I don't think that you know, pride and prejudice is a recipe to conduct, you know, bilateral economic relations because, you know, Mexico tried it. It didn't work. And I would say that, that uh, I hope that the, the last novel that was uh, published by Jane Austen in her lifetime will carry the day. And the title of that novel is Persuasion. So I do hope that persuasion carries the day and not pride and prejudice. Thank you so much. I want to welcome Russ. Uh, Russ was a colleague of mine in the state senate. Um, he represented Arizona in our border legislative conference uh, in prior years when I was in the California Senate. Uh, but he is also currently the chair of the Border Trade Alliance. Uh, and and of another mechanism, which is really, as Antonio talked about, sort of this offspring of relationship that came out of NAFTA, not about the rules, but about the relationship, um, the border a philanthropy partnership, which is housed here in San Diego. So um, really, we mostly invited him as the Border Trade Alliance person to talk about the U.S. economy uh, and some of the impacts, uh, what we've seen. What is the 20, it's 23 years. So modernization is an interesting, we didn't have some of the technologies we have now. Uh, We had a labor agreement. We have an environmental agreement. Maybe those aren't very modern. Who knows what those look like in the real world. Uh, And um, how do we think about uh, the U.S.'s role? We've heard a lot of rhetoric from other areas. Uh, and the one thing that occurs to me is partly how much both of us need to invest in sort of ongoing education and workforce preparation as those technologies change. You can't always have your rules be about the things you produced in 1993, but what about the things that you're producing in 2023? So, Russ. I enjoyed those many years on the through the Council of State Governments and working on the Border Legislative Conference, which continues to this day uh, in some other formats that we both support. And it's a collaborative effort, since you mentioned it, uh, of the 10 border states, this off-subject, that brings um, um, legislators from the 10 border states together. Uh, Used to be twice a year. I think it's going to be once a year now. Excuse me. And... um, to collaborate on issues that they have in common, to find where we have commonality. I recall, um, ironically, that uh, I was in the state legislature, and I was uh, myself and, uh, and Senator Amanda Aguirre, 
we were um, hosting um, the Border Legislative Conference in Phoenix and uh, when the infamous 1070 was passed the very day. So if you didn't think that uh, gave rise to some interesting dialogue between the 10 uh, uh, states and their different points of view, but uh, uh, needless to say, the, the six Mexican states did not leave the room as they almost did, and we found... Some, we found that where reasonable people, yes, reasonable people can always uh, talk and work things out. And so uh, we were able to do that. Um, I'm a custom house broker, uh, third generation. Um, firm was founded in the late 30s in Calexico. I grew up on the Mexican border. My family's been uh, thriving on the border since 1905. About half of my family is Mexican because you can't live on the border that long and not have folks go back and forth. I recall riding my bicycle after school to Mexicali back and forth to visit friends. It was a different different time. But uh, and and I like to think of the border as the frontera zona because it it is a special zone with a special culture all to itself that's unique and beautiful uh, that should be preserved at all costs and and the sight of that ungodly wall going up uh, uh, to me was uh, and I'm, I consider myself a fairly conservative Republican. Don't throw me out. <clears throat> but that was, uh, I thought that was a bridge or a wall too far, in my opinion. Um, I represent, uh, for the last, uh, last year and for the remainder of this year, I'm chairman of the Border Trade Alliance. I leave in the morning for D.C., and I'll be spending four days there. We'll be back again in uh, late March for another week, um, meeting with um, our congressional delegation and different agencies. The Border Trade Alliance is made up of uh, people like myself, customs brokers, trucking companies, manufacturers, cities, economic development organizations, bridge owners, bridge managers, all the way from Brownsville uh, to San Diego. In San Diego, um, we have the uh, Tijuana-San Diego Smart uh, Border Coalition, of which I'm a member also, and um, also the uh, Greater San Diego Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and our company, because we, op- we have offices in Otay Mesa. And so we, uh, we're, we participate in BTA from here and in other places. But the issues of Border Trade Alliance, uh, we've been very, very engaged. Um, we were able to get legislation passed over the last few years that created the 559 programs where you could actually uh, engage the private sector in funding uh, infrastructure as well as operating costs to augment hours at ports of entry. Uh, we were uh, very much behind one of the few organizations that stood up to defend the NAD Bank and uh, help it get its authorization through. We have one more piece of legislation that we are working on as we speak to get them reauthorized and funded. And so we, we work together um, on what we have in common, the, then, and we, we meet regularly. We have uh, standing committees that work on various areas of policy, and then we try to, once we come to consensus, take that in some cases uh, in the form of resolution, others in specific legislation uh, to the Hill to get it passed. Um, as far as the, the U.S. trade relationship with Mexico, um, again, I, that, that this, it is so integrated now that uh, it, it would just, it's like, uh, you know, trying to put Humpty Dumpty together again should he fall off the wall um, that, uh, that separates us. Because, um, you know, <clears throat> Mexico, uh, U.S. jobs that depend on Mex- trade with Mexico run around, around 
five million. That's anywhere between four and a half to five million, various studies. But when you put that in perspective, the jobs that are, are about exports to the world from the United States are 20 million. So 25% of the U.S. jobs involved in trade are jobs with Mexico. If you, uh, Mexico, um, the Department of Secretary of Exterior, uh, Comercio Exterior, they, uh, they, per- they did a very, in, uh, it's an intriguing graph of the United States and all the states. And it shows in terms of the total trade relationship between each state and, uh, and Mexico um, that in half the states in the United States list Mexico as their number one trading partner and Canada as their number two. The other half, interestingly enough, say Canada's number one, but Mexico's number two. And so when you have all 50 states where their number one and number two trade partners are with the other NAFTA partners, uh, again, I don't know how you take that apart, and, and the, it would be like dropping a bomb in the middle of our economy, and I don't think anyone has a model that can predict what would be the ultimate outcome of, of that. Um, NAFTA occurred 20-some-odd years ago, 23 years ago. In the first um, um, decade or so of NAFTA, the trade was very balanced. Um, Part of the deal with NAFTA was Mexico would float its currency, which it agreed to do. And it seemed to work fine. Uh, But at that time, for many years, it was like 1 to 10. And a lot of the trade deficit that we're dealing with today has to do with things that are totally unrelated to the specific trade of one product, automotive, electric, electronics, or what have you, or agriculture, but has to do with, with um, monetary issues and the size of, of the GMP in the United States and that of Mexico. And when we, um, when we hiccup, Mexico sneezes in terms of that relationship and the economy and the currencies. There have been several really good articles out recently uh, that have been published that, that talk about uh, that issue other good articles that show, several good studies that show that uh, American manufacturing output is greater than it ever was. And a, large, a lot of that is due to Mexico and Canada. And those who dust off their um, um, wealth of nations from their um, uh, macroeconomics 101, Adam Smith will know that what we did is very fundamental so that the three countries can put their best foot, economic foot forward and what they can do and the other can do, and we've all gained from that. The other thing I think to keep this in perspective, it was mentioned um, by Beatrice, uh, is, the, is the WTO and GATT, which is the Global Agreement on tra- uh, Trade and Tariffs. Those rounds were already under, underway and ongoing when NAFTA was signed, and the, those relationships continue in reducing tariffs. The other parts of the, of, that were hotly contested between labor and other uh, interests back in the 80s was that of 9801 and 9802. As a custom house broker, most of our customers, many of our customers will use NAFTA, but they still use 9802, 9801 because those are the provisions for um, uh, U.S. products going abroad to be assembled or advanced in value and returned and within certain parameters. And those are still strongly embedded. And so if, um, if you don't take those into consideration, those aren't going away regardless of what happens in the relationship with U.S. and Mexico. Another one, you mentioned uh, agriculture. I think the Ohio, I think, is the state that uh, exports more agriculture to uh, Mexico than, than uh, any other state. But 
The integration of agriculture goes ways beyond. Uh, being on the border, we handle a lot of agricultural products. Mexico and the United States, through this, through, because of uh, NAFTA, uh, m- many products, well, 25 or 30 specifically, that have in the, in, the, in the basket of fresh produce, not just tomatoes and avocados, are grown because they're relatively labor-intensive. They have to be trimmed. They have to be packed. They have to be wrapped or banded. And that labor intensiveness creates uh, 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 an advantage to do that in Mexico. Also, more and more of the organics that we eat in the United States are grown in Mexico because it's particularly labor intensive. And so these operations happen in Mexico, while in the U.S. we grow lettuce and broccoli and cauliflower, and uh, we grow wheat, we do wheat and other grains because we, uh, there, there are more um, inputs in terms of equipment and materials than the labor and so there's this nice symbiotic relationship. So when a load of lettuce in the winter leaves Yuma, 98% of the iceberg lettuce in the country is, comes from Yuma in the winter, and they have the other three or four or five products that are produced in the valleys of Imperial County, uh, Yuma, Welton, Mohawk, there's about 20 to 25 other products being grown in Mexico that cross every day to mix with those loads to, to provide to all the supermarkets the complete array of, of produce that they require for a salad. And the same thing happens in over, to some degree, over in, uh, in Nogales. So these, these economies and these industries are so integrated, I don't know where the United States would go. Uh, you t- got rid of that. The duty on, before we started the GATT rounds, or NAFTA, excuse me, the NAFTA, the U.S. duty on, on melons was 35% of the value. It's now nothing. Well, what if we impose 35% again? Where are you going to get your melons? Where are you going to have breakfast? So um, the other is the automotive industry. Automotive industries, if it wasn't for NAFTA and the realization and some changes that were made, the automotive industry wouldn't probably be in North America any longer, uh, just like we no longer have a textile industry. I doubt if anyone here can stand up and say that every piece of clothing they're wearing was made in the United States. So the shirt's on our backs, okay? And then the, the roof's over our head if we didn't have the Canadian lumber coming in. Um, there, and more and more of the food we eat, are, we're dependent on other countries, and in particularly Mexico. And I, for one, like the idea of having food security. Uh, if we could do things to NAFTA, and I'll kind of segue into that uh, in the Border Trade Alliance position. Within the TPP, there were eight items that were actually negotiated to help fix NAFTA, because NAFTA is long in the tooth. No one wanted to really open up that Pandora's box, and uh, so it was thought, well, TPP is the way to get those changes made. Most of us in the industry on the border will tell you that there are some other things that should be addressed in NAFTA. There are some issues in uh, rules of origin that might even restore textile production in North America. But because it's a fiber-forward rule of origin, and it was intended initially to preserve and keep the textile mills in the south of the United States, it didn't work. Eventually, once the assembly of the textiles went offshore, then the production of the, the fabrics and mills went offshore. There's not a sewing machine made in North America anymore. That entire industry has relocated to elsewhere in the world. And so uh, there are some areas where if we collaborated, we could actually look at attracting some of these industries back to North America. 
So I'll leave it with that and answer questions. All of you have raised uh, important points about what, one of the things I was trying to zero in, and I think Russ got to it at the end. What's changed? What, what were the things we traded in 1993 and 94 and 95 that are different than what we do now? From your customs broker perspective, how, how's the loads changed and how much growth has there been? Customs brokers are probably the best leading indicator. If you want to know which way the economy is going, ask the customs broker the volumes of his shipping. Um, Because we watch and we track that in our firm very closely. And we'll see the drops in in production or what we handle far before the economy or the unemployment rates and other lagging indicators um, respond to it. So um, our business has grown uh, fairly dramatically. We've grown from between 15 to 20 percent a year uh, with um, only two years where it was less than 10 percent. So that's a testimony to the industry. One of the, the things that strikes me, and you mentioned the AFL in that, is this question of sort of labor, um, the environmental side agreements, the labor side agreements, uh, whether those worked. And, of course, my favorite pet, the possible collateral damage to NADBank and, and COSEF and to Beck, um, because they were not an official side agreement but a product uh, if you will, of the original negotiations. But the labor and, and environmental agreements, I think, are another area people could look at without, like you say, opening this total Pandora's box that maybe needs some modernization, and I don't know enough about them to say that. So, I would just like to make a very short comment with regard to the previous question of how things have changed. And I think that the most important change in our trade relationship is that um, more and more in the last years, you see, you see that we do, not, we do not only trade things or sell to each other products, but we sell inputs. We have integrated, integrated our value chains. That has to do with the major transforma- transformation of trade in this century as a consequence of the information technology revolution. When the, con- when the companies were able to... Um, communicate better through internet and sending emails that occurred when we sent our first email in the mid-1990s, companies decided to fragment their production processes and to produce all over the world, where it was cheaper to produce each of the components. In the case of, of, of North America, the three products in the three sectors in which we most trade um, are the three sectors in which we are champions in the world. Of, of those sectors, which is the automotive, the machinery, and the electric electronic uh, sectors, in which we, uh, w- pro- pro- yeah, products go back and forth, and more than 50% of the trade in those of our trade to the world in those sectors is intra-regional. So th- I think that has that shows a major transformation, and that responds to what we have seen in the world. And that trade more and more is more than global value chains, is regional value chains. 50% of world trade today is intra-regional, is under free trade agreements, and it is on the inputs, not of finished goods. So that is a trend that we see in North America and that we see in the world. Now, uh, with regard to your specific uh, question on labor and environment, that is one of the demands of the AFL-CIO. What we did under NAFTA was to try, as you, as you can recall, 
This was not part of the of their core agreement. It was one. It was a signature of President Clinton when he came into power, and uh, and that's why NAFTA was delayed a year or two years. That was a condition he put, and it helped him also pass the agreement through Congress. And what Mexico did, and I think we were very effective in the negotiation, is we were very worried that because of labor and environmental issues and stakes, um, the U.S. would use this uh, to suspend benefits or to affect the trade liberalization that was done under NAFTA. So a separate agreement was done with its own dispute settlement mechanism um, that had as a final recourse, if, if one of the countries were, were determined uh, violating labor, its own labor and environmental laws, uh, uh, a, a monetary sanction could be imposed. Um, it was done and structured such a way that we have not had no case. It has been active, but no final panel decision. And the major change that we, we, we have seen in labor and environment um, as a consequence of a bipartisan agreement that was reached in 2010, that which imposed the obligation uh, to the president to incorporate labor and environment provisions in the core agreement, and then as a consequence, if there's a violation of, la of each country's labor or environmental commitments, um, you can take the country to a panel, and the and the country that if the country that is claiming wins can suspend benefits from the agreement. So and in whatever sector, so it can establish retaliatory measures, uh, and suspend impose tariffs, as impose trade restrictions, whatever they want to do. This is a major major concession that Mexico was willing to give the U.S. under the TPP. Peru, Colombia, Korea, Peru, Colombia had to renegotiate their agreements to incorporate those provisions in their free trade agreements that were not there. So that is a major concession that I think Mexico would be willing to give. It is strengthened. It has greater obligations because it commitments on their free trade and their, and their in, other international labor and environmental. So that's that would be, I think, one of the changes with regard to what was negotiated originally. We'll give you, we'll give you Antonio, the, the final wrap-up comment. But I think I'm starting to think maybe we should just change the name so everybody's – NAFTA's gotten a bad rap. So what, what do we say? Maybe it's not the trade agreement. It's the economic integration agreement. North American Fair Trade. There you go. That'll make you know. Forget who trade. But I don't think we're. I, I'm with Russ though. I don't think we're trading anymore. We're producing together. So it's the North American Co-Production Agreement, not the North American Trade Agreement. There you go. A word about the uh, the, the labor side uh, agreement. Uh, you know, Mexico agreed to upgrade it through the TPP negotiations. So in one way to modernize. NAFTA would be to rebrand, to be frank, some of the agreements that were reached under the TPP and to incorporate it. Of course, Mexico accepted those in terms of trade-offs, so we, we would see what trade-offs would prevail or not. But in terms of you know, the, uh, the new labor agreement, you know, I believe that the AFL-CIO would, would favor the current provisions. But again, the U.S. is facing some challenges that will only be able uh, to be resolved at the domestic level. 
uh, workers you know, need health insurance that's not tied to their jobs. So there was something called Obamacare. Now they're doing away with Obamacare. So now how, what will be the safety net in terms of health insurance? So, again, that's a domestic issue. Second, there's something called TAA, Trade Adjustment Assistance. I don't think it has worked very effectively. So maybe what the U.S. needs to do is to rethink how they will – how the government will work with the private sector to help train or retrain workers, not for the economies of the past, for, 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 for future needs. You know, high, high technology, IT revolution, that's something uh, that needs to be done. And then finally, a word on the trade surplus or deficit without getting into, you know, uh, open macroeconomics 101. What I would say is that uh, if, if the U.S. is concerned about a trade deficit, you know, one way to address it from their perspective is to put a border tax and to have less Mexican exports going to the U.S. How about more U.S. exports? going to Mexico. You know, that's another way of looking at it. And in order for more U.S. experts to go to Mexico, the U.S. needs to have a very positive and constructive bilateral relationship overall. So, again, don't forget about the whole context. Last word. Uh, real quick, uh, I, I would include agriculture. Again, it is so integrated that the United States exports and feeds a good part of the whole world. Why? Because they have a partner in Mexico that produces, produces their products that complement our products. And so it's, it is a North American basket of, of, of food that is exported throughout this world. And there's other impacts of agriculture that would, would hurt that relationship. Uh, finally, there's been far more jobs lost to technology change. If you look at the, um, in agriculture in particular, and it's down to uh, the, the percentage of, of Americans that are involved in agriculture, it's a little above 1% of the workforce. Yet they are, continue to outproduce and produce for the world. And, and this is also true of the manufacturing sector. So technology is, is the culprit by far. Every study I've said shows that, not NAFTA. Our, our downfall in the United States is we have not looked at and properly retrained and helped people relocate. Because it's not just retraining for a job. But the cost of relocating, and particularly during the financial crisis when people couldn't get out of a home, they couldn't relocate if they had to. And so it was a, it was a, a just a very, it was a perfect storm of reasons why. Another issue, I will, I'm going to put Mexico on the, on the spot here. There isn't a single border city that does not have a major shortage of workforce for U.S. twin plants. Every single one of them in the tens of thousands in some cities. Why? Because Mexico has not done its job in providing basic infrastructure housing, water, and other, th and other inputs that are required to have a, a, a robust, modern, uh, industrialized uh, uh, sector on the southern border. And, uh, and we have some areas on the southern border, particularly where we have some issues with water, too. But at any rate, um, there's, there's plenty of blame to spread around for everyone, uh, and, and, and getting divorced is not going to fix it, because you still got to pay the mortgage. There you go. And on that note, we will uh, move the dialogue to the next panel. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.